Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for joining our TELUS webinar. For, and happy to see faces, I know, actually. Um, for everyone who does not know me, I'm Marina, and I'm one of the local coordinators in Tel Aviv Jaffa. And I want to introduce our very special guest today first. I'm Beth Oppenheim and Omar Shaban. Beth is the International Relations Director of Gisha, um, an, internet, an Israeli nonprofit works for freedom of movement for Palestinians, especially in the Gaza Strip. Um, and Omar Shaban, someone speaking to us locally from Gaza, an economist and the founder of Pell Think, um, a think tank for strategic studies based in Gaza. Hi, Omar, thank you. But um, I'd like to, to turn over to Beth, and then in the end, we, we'll circle back with questions. Beth, um, just for the beginning, could you first talk very briefly about your work at Gisha, what, and just delve into the question, why should Israelis care, and what is Israel's responsibility in all this situation regarding Gaza? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Beth and I'm the Director of International Relations at Gisha, which is based in Tel Aviv, which is where I'm speaking to you from today. Thank you so much to TELUS for organising this discussion, and I'm really happy to be talking with Omar today. As Omar said, we've been in touch before, but it's lovely to be able to see his face. Um, so Gisha is an Israeli NGO, human rights NGO, that was founded in 2005 to answer the question of what Israel's obligations are to the Gaza Strip following Israel's disengagement from the Strip. Um, so in 2005, Israel withdrew its settlers and its army from Gaza. As Omar outlined two years later, Hamas took power by force, pushed the Palestinian Authority out. And since that time, Israel has used the pretext of security to impose very severe restrictions on the Gaza Strip and on its civilian population. And in doing so, Israel has actually maintained um, very, very high levels of control over the Gaza Strip, mostly through the restrictions on movement and access into Gaza. Um, and really what Gisha's main mandate is, is to try to make the argument that Israel needs to meet its obligations to the people of Gaza under international law. So as set down in international law in the Fourth Geneva Convention, Basically, when an occupying power maintains control over um, an area, it continues to have an obligation to those people um, to meet the basic needs of the population at minimum. And this is something that Israel has repeatedly um, refused to do and denied responsibility for, um, despite calls from the, the rest of the world to honor its obligations under international law. Um, so something that Gisha wants to do is to push Israel to lift the closure as far as possible. And as Omar said, I think the coronavirus crisis is an opportune moment um, to facilitate, to, to call on Israel to facilitate free movement of goods during this time. Um, we know that the whole world is facing very dire economic consequences from um, the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and of course, given the fragile state of the economy in Gaza as it is, it's, it's even more important um, for the Gaza Strip in order for Israel to try to mitigate against the economic effects of the coronavirus. So one thing that Gisha is very strongly calling for at this time is for Israel to allow the free movement of goods as far as possible during this time 
and of course going beyond um, the coronavirus period to actually facilitate the free movement of people once the pandemic has subsided. Um, there's been a, basically a situation now where the Israeli authorities have been putting out messages um, and kind of self-congratulating about how Israel has allowed access for medical equipment. They use the term allowed, so again, that underlines the degree of control um, that Israel exercises, that it's at Israel's discretion whether or not these humanitarian goods can actually um, enter the Gaza Strip. Um, but it's important to note, I think, that the vast majority of the humanitarian uh, equipment aid that's been entering Gaza is from international donors. The IDF did donate some testing kits for the coronavirus, but broadly speaking, um, this is coming from international donors and Israel is at least facilitating its entry. Um, but I think the bottom line is that Israel consistently refuses to take any responsibility for Gaza, despite its very clear obligations under international law. So that's financial or otherwise. Um, and Israel has kind of done quite a successful job of outsourcing responsibility for the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority. Um, and the Palestinian Authority then in turn asks the international community for funding. So Israel's basically outsourcing its legal obligations um, where possible. And it's really nurturing this perception at the moment that Israel is behaving in a kind of humanitarian way. And actually, um, this is, I think, born out of self-interest um, for Israel. So we saw the depths of Israeli cynicism a few days ago when Israel's defense minister, Naftali Bennett, suggested that Israel might make aid to Gaza, so coronavirus aid to Gaza, conditional um, on the return of the remains of Israeli soldiers that were killed during the 2014 war. So actually attempting to leverage this crisis um, to meet Israel's self-interest, essentially. Um, and we're, we're finding that actually officials as high up as um, Mladenov, who's the UN special coordinator for the Middle East peace process, are praising Israel um, for its coordination on the coronavirus. So I think it's important to remember that actually this isn't about gestures of goodwill, um, which is something that Israel, I think, is maybe how Israel views the situation, the government of Israel. Um, but actually, this is an argument that Gisha has been making for a very long time, since 2005. The coronavirus is a moment to revisit this and remind Israel that actually the ongoing and very comprehensive control that Israel wields over countless aspects of life in Gaza comes with responsibilities towards the residents of Gaza, including the obligation to protect basic rights and living conditions in the Gaza Strip. And in fact, as, as Omar outlined really well, Israel, of course, has chosen to do the complete opposite of this um, for 14 years with its suffocating closure policy. And that has left Gaza really ill-prepared for a crisis um, like this pandemic. And so I think that actually the, the state that Israel has put the Gaza Strip into uh, will, willfully through the last 14 years of its policy, even more means that Israel has this obligation um, to protect the basic rights of the people in Gaza. Um, on the question of why, why Israelis should care, I've outlined the legal obligation. Of course, there is also an incredibly strong moral imperative. Um, if you look at it from a purely interest-based perspective, um, as Omar said, this is a disease that knows no borders. 
Um, the Israeli government or the health ministry is, of course, very concerned. You said it's, I think it's five kilometers between the Gaza Strip and Israel, um, that actually an outbreak in Gaza would have profound implications for the public health in Israel as well. And of course, from a security point of view, um, a very desperate situation in Gaza could escalate tensions uh, between Israel and the Strip. Um, and a very sharp deterioration in the already very serious economic situation would undermine the existing fragile ceasefire agreement between Hamas and Israel, which is predicated on socio-economic improvement in Gaza. Oh, that's a lot to take in. Thank you, Beth. Um, just a short reminder for everyone who has questions, type them in the chat and we'll get to them. Um, so Beth, you, you've been talking about Israel's responsibility towards the Gaza Strip. Um, how would that play out on a practical level? What does Israel need to do? Um, so in terms of what Israel needs to do, if I could just outline briefly before that um, the impact of the closure policies on Gaza over the last 14 years and on the health sector as well. Um, I think the coronavirus is basically exposing the fragility of Gaza. Um, and this is something that we've seen across the world is that the same in, I think you're calling from the US, most of you on this call, um, the, you know, of course the, the very uh, big problems of the US healthcare system have been laid bare by this situation and um, whatever your views might be on the presidency. But similarly in, in Gaza, we're seeing the fragility that has been inflicted by decades of Israeli occupation really laid bare. Um, so the closure policy that Israel has pursued for the last 14 years has resulted in a severe humanitarian crisis where Palestinians in Gaza are being routinely denied access to the most basic of provisions, electricity, clean water, medical care, building materials. Um, of course, as we've already heard, the healthcare system has been left to decay. We have chronic shortages in skilled medical staff, medicines, medical equipment, and a kind of absurd situation arising where vulnerable patients who might have um, suppressed immune systems are being forced to leave Gaza to get, say, urgent cancer treatment. Um, but actually, we're now in a situation where many of those vulnerable patients are choosing not to leave the strip and are basically missing out on urgent treatment because they're so worried about the risk of being infected with the coronavirus. Um, we've also seen a situation where Gaza has been teetering on the brink of an economic crisis, as Omar said, very high employment, specifically youth unemployment. And Israel's closure policy has also entrenched the division of Gaza from the West Bank. Um, and intensified the internal Palestinian political divide. Um, in terms of the situation now with movement, which is what Gishar focuses on is movement and access, we've seen very limited movement in and out of the Palestinian territory as a whole. And specifically in Gaza, the movement of people has been at a virtual standstill um, with the Wafa crossing closed and Eretz crossing only open for the return of Gaza residents. Um, the commercial crossing for goods Kerem Shalom into Israel has remained open and Salah al-Din into Egypt is also open as normal. Um, but I think it's really essential to underline the fact that this is like a man-made crisis leaving aside the coronavirus, but the, the dire situation in the Gaza Strip, it has political causes. Um, and the, cause, the primary cause is uh, Israel's closure policy. Um, in terms of an appropriate response from Israel's side, um, 
I think what Gishar is calling for is that Israel needs to acknowledge its responsibility for the health of Palestinians across the occupied Palestinian territory um, and of course in Gaza and it's not simply about gestures of goodwill um, and that Israel actually needs to be using its own resources to support Gaza it's not just about um, allowing in aid from other actors but actually Israel taking financial responsibility itself um, something else that Gishar is calling for is for maximum transparency from the Israeli government on its plans. So Israel still hasn't made clear what it would do in the event of a, of a serious outbreak in the Gaza Strip. Will, it, will Israel allow coronavirus patients into Israel? Um, so basically there's a real need for Israel to explicitly incorporate Palestine into its plans. Um, for now, what we're arguing is that Israel needs to take serious steps to protect Gaza's economy. Um, so Israel needs to facilitate movement of goods to the greatest possible extent, um, particularly in those sectors related to food production. So Gishar's put out, um, written a couple of urgent letters last week to Israel's defense minister um, and to the head of COGATS, uh, the authority that coordinates Israeli activity in the occupied territory. Um, so areas like agriculture, which is absolutely crucial to Gaza's economy, at the moment we have a situation where Israel restricts goods that it deems to be dual use, so goods that have both a military and a civilian application, um, but that captures a, a whole number of things that are actually essential for many um, sectors, so fertilizers, for example, when it comes to agriculture. Um, so we're saying that Israel needs to reduce these restrictions, which are not in line with international standards. It's Israel's own very long list of items that it controls as dual use. Um, also on the fishing industry. So at the moment, um, Israel restricts the number of nautical miles that fishermen can get their boats out to. So Israel should increase the number of nautical miles, we're arguing. It need, again, I talked about the dual use goods. There's a lot of goods that relate to the fishing sector that are restricted. And Israel needs to allow those goods in so that the fishing industry can thrive as it should be. Um, and also on processed foods is another area that we're looking at. And then, as I already mentioned, after this coronavirus period ends, this isn't the end of the story for the crisis in Gaza. The, the crisis will persist as it has done for, for many, many years. Um, and Israel needs to actually remove barriers to the movement of people. Um, and remove any restrictions that are not related legitimately to security, but are there um, for the purpose of pressuring the Hamas regime and in turn actually the civilian population of Gaza. Thank you, Beth. Um, and where does the international community come in here? And that's maybe a question to both of you. Um, but like, what, what do you need most from the international community right now? Um, I mean, of course, we need finance, Gaza needs financial support from the international community. Um, the estimated financial need by the UN's humanitarian country team is around $6 million for Gaza alone, $34 million across the Palestinian territory. Um, but I think a mistake that has often been made in terms of policy towards Gaza from the international community for many, many years um, is this sense that like financial support and money is going to solve the problem or is at least all the international community seems to be able to master and actually financial support has proved to be completely inadequate um, and as i outlined already it runs the risk of detracting from israel's legal obligations and occupying power if other 
um, actors are filling in basically for what Israel should be doing. So of course, financial support's important. There's also materials that, that Gaza desperately needs. So the EU and also the UN and other actors need to be providing ventilators, um, ICU beds, protective equipment, testing kits. But I think it's important that these kind of donations and also aid needs to come with conditions. So I think there needs to be much more diplomatic engagement with Israel, pressure put on Israel to meet its obligations under international law. Um, there needs to be much stronger messaging about Israel's accountability um, and also pressure on Israel to actually make financial contributions to Gaza as well as allowing in all humanitarian aid. And Omar referenced briefly earlier the no contact policy with Hamas. Um, which has been instated um, after the 2006, after the election when Hamas uh, won the election. Uh, the US, EU and the UN Secretariat all boycotted the results of the election when Hamas refused to renounce violence um, and instated a, a non-recognition, no-contact policy with Hamas, which it, they will designate as a terrorist organization. Um, but that causes in a, in a humanitarian situation like this major problems in terms of actually being able to um, cooperate with the de facto authority in Gaza. So I think it's also up to the international community to ensure that the no contact policy doesn't interfere with important humanitarian efforts. So offering legal protection, for example, to aid organizations that are engaging with the Hamas authorities in Gaza. Thank you.